think the uh, last time I saw you was before we were in Cameroon in uh, the end of March. Had a great time teaching there, as always. We are uh, getting to the end of our three-year commitment. We'll go back in November and uh, back again in May and then have a graduation of about 40 or 50 pastors. And uh, thank you for your help in getting there. Thank you for providing white canes for blind people. We're still collecting, by the way. Uh, we're, we're trying to get 1,000. So far, I have 525 white canes. And if you want to contribute, there's $6 a piece. You can give new eyes to a blind person in Africa. And uh, it is our our hope that either in November or next spring, we will have a huge uh, outreach over there for blind people in Cameroon. There's 600,000 of them there. I don't think they'll all come because we only have a thousand canes. But uh, we want to be able to not only give them eyes to walk the streets of Cameroon, but show them how Jesus can give them eyes to see things that they have never dreamed uh, even existed when they know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So we did give out a few when we were in Cameroon this past time. And if I could just capture those moments, I think we did on video, but the, 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 the joy in someone's face when they hold that cane in their hand, it's six bucks. For them in that country, if they can find one, it's about $50, which is about a month's salary. But to hold that cane and to see the smile on their face, it's worth it all. This week, uh, my brother Steve will graduate again with a Ph.D., yeah, he's, uh, he's my, my little brother. Uh, I, I became a Christian first. I led him to Christ three years later. And uh, we were both high school dropouts. But even as teenagers, we were highly competitive in everything, fighting, arm wrestling. I mean, we just, uh, who has more hair? Who's better looking? I mean, we have, had, we, we have had every argument. I think it's obvious to those questions. But... Uh, <laughs> so... Uh, when I got my GED, he got his GED. And uh, when I went to college, uh, he went to the same college and graduated a little bit after me. Then we both started in seminary, and I was pastoring at the time, so it took me nine years to get a three-year program down. And so he graduated before me with his master's. But then I went ahead and got another master's in theology. And so he had to go ahead and get another master's in theology. And so I went ahead and got a doctor of ministry degree. And uh, he went ahead and got a doctor of ministry degree. Now he's got his PhD. But I surrender. (laughs) I surrender. And... I do. I, I, I actually, you know, there's this competitiveness, competitiveness in me. I actually did enroll and started through the process, and I thought, you know, 
I'm 68 years old. I'm, I'm going to, you know, I tend to pastor the rest of my life. I, I don't need a PhD except for my ego. Uh, so I surrender. And plus, you know, your children and the Lord should always step on your shoulders and go beyond you. So I, I, I rejoice in what God has, how he's changed his life. Tonight I'm looking at Isaiah chapter 53. As many of you know, Isaiah 53 is part of a poem that begins in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13. It is a five stanza poem. The first stanza is sort of a declaration of the triumph of the servant of the Lord. Uh, This is a servant song. There's four of them. This is the fourth of the servant songs in Isaiah. And uh, they speak of the coming Messiah. So the first stanza foresees the triumph of the Messiah and really how the nations respond to that triumph, how they're startled by, by this, this one who conquers for his people. And then the center section, which probably we're most familiar with, uh, verses 1 through 9 of chapter 3, are talking about the suffering servant. And we have those wonderful texts like, surely he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities and the chastisement for our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And, you know, we, we, we read that passage as Christians. And right away we say, you know, that is Jesus Christ. And I've made it a practice when I am able to engage a Jewish person in conversation to read that text to them. I remember meeting uh, a Jewish man, Al, who later became a believer and became part of Grace Church and then died. And hopefully he really was a believer and is in heaven today. But I remember first meeting him uh, on the streets in Philadelphia. And I asked him if I could read him something. And so I took out uh, my phone and I read Isaiah chapter 53, the the third stanza of that poem. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And uh, he's, he's listening to me read this. And uh, he says, that's Jesus. Where are you reading that from? And I said, this is in your Bible. This is in the prophets. This is Isaiah. But he had never heard it. To him, that was a Christian reading of scripture. Now, there's a reason for that, even if he was a good synagogue boy. Because in the 
reading of scripture in the synagogue. They read through the books of Moses every year over and over, completely through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and start all over again. And then they read through portions of the prophets. And they they read some of Isaiah. They read Isaiah 49. And they read Isaiah 50. And Isaiah 51. And they read Isaiah 52, verses 1 through 12. And then they read Isaiah 54. Now, a Jewish apologist, one who is defending the Jewish faith, would say, well, we don't read all of the prophets. And they're right. They don't read every word of the prophets. But it is curious that they read 49 and 50 and 51 and 52, 1 through 12, but not 52, 13 through 15 and 53, 1 through 12, and then jump to 54. Because, as one author says, there is only one brow on which this crown of thorns fits. There's only one person who, who... fulfills all that is said in Isaiah chapter 53. And so tonight we're looking at the end of the poem, just the fifth stanza, where it tells about this glorious triumph of this servant who suffered so intensely. Listen to uh, the text tonight, Isaiah 53, 10 through 12. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, And makes intercession for the transgressors. I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. This one who suffers to death will, as we'll see, enjoy the spoils of victory. It's talking about the resurrection the, the, the ongoing life of this suffering servant. How many of you have ever heard of Dr. S.M. Lockridge? Maybe you have, maybe you just don't know his name. Maybe you've listened to some of his sermons, although he's now in heaven. But he was an Afro-American pastor of a very thriving church in San Diego for 40 years. He had a wonderful gift of language, of his rhetorical skills, his passion, his use of words was always very engaging. One of his famous sermons, if you Google it on YouTube, is, that's my king. And he goes through this litany of descriptions 
of Jesus Christ from before the creation of the world and the creation of the world and the prophecies of him and his incarnation and his life and death and resurrection and and you know he has this refrain over and over again that's my king it is a moving message But another one of his messages, which again, maybe you've heard and didn't know it was by him, is called, It's Friday, but Sunday is coming. And with his passion and his skill of language and his way to engage a congregation, He begins his sermon like this. It's Friday. Jesus is arrested in the garden where he was praying. It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. It's Friday. The disciples are hiding and Peter's denying that he knew the Lord. It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. It's Friday. Jesus is standing before the high priest of Israel, silent as a lamb before the slaughter. It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. It's Friday. Jesus is beaten, mocked, and spit upon. It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. It was Friday, and my Jesus is dead on a tree. But that's Friday, and Jesus is coming. And then he begins to apply it. Friday, people are saying darkness is going to rule the world. Sadness is going to be everywhere. But they don't know. It's only Friday. But Sunday's coming. Even though the world is rotten, as rotten as it is right now, we know it's only Friday, but Sunday is coming. And what Lockridge does is he uses that that theme, that idea, really to apply it to people's lives, that you're suffering, life is tough, and you know, this is the Friday of your life, like the crucifixion was the Friday of Jesus' life, but Sunday's coming. But I want to move beyond that. Because it's Sunday. And Friday has passed. Jesus did die. Jesus did suffer. But Jesus rose from the dead. It's Sunday. Friday has passed. Death has been conquered. Satan has been defeated. Sin has been atoned for. It's Sunday. Friday is past. We live on the Sunday side. We live on the resurrection side. We live on the victory side. The resurrection is reality. And as much as I love the cross, I never want to think of the cross without thinking of it is Sunday. And Friday is past. Jesus Christ lives and he lives forever. We stand on resurrection ground. We are not living in defeat. 
waiting for victory. We are living in victory, waiting for more victory. We know that Christ has won the war. There are battles being fought, but the war has already been won. In Christ, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Thanks be unto God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. It is Sunday. Friday has passed. And that's really the way that we need to look at life. We are on the resurrection side. We with the apostles and the 500 by the word of God, we have witnessed the reality that Jesus Christ has conquered sin and death. That he did what the father called him to do. And our text this afternoon gives us assurance of that. Written 800 years before it happened. Planned before the very foundation of the world that the servant of the Lord, the Messiah, would suffer, but he would rise again. He would enjoy the spoils of victory. And so my question tonight is for us to think about is how can we be sure that the death of Christ was not simply a tragic accident of history? but that it effectively accomplishes what God intended for those of us who believe. How do we know that this is real? Well, 800 years before it happens, our text is telling us that the suffering of Christ is due to the wise and good sovereign plan of God. No accident. Yet it was the will of the Lord, the sovereign covenant God, Jehovah. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. And I'm making sure I don't hit that one. (laughs) This was God's will. Even though as the writer of Acts tells us that this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. But he says, you crucified him. And he was killed by the hands of lawless men. Yes, from on the human side, he was killed by men. But from the prophetic side, Isaiah 800 years before says it was the will of the Lord to crush him and to put him to grief. And he picks up the same language that he used earlier in that center portion of the poem. He was crushed for our iniquities. I mean, it's a violent word. And if you've watched The Passion, then you've been moved by the suffering of Christ. You know, in, in many ways, it's not a good movie because it really does not tell you what this all means and how this suffering is for your final, your complete redemption. 
I remember when Mel Gibson was being interviewed and he was asked about, you know, writing the film and directing it and, 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 and the purpose of it. And uh, he said that he wanted people to know that Christ has opened the door for them to get to heaven. But Christ did more than open the door. Now I understand why he says that as a Roman Catholic. Because he opens the door, but you have to get through that door and stay in that door. So it doesn't tell us really the benefits of the work of Christ. But at the same time, it vividly depicts the suffering of Christ. I can remember when Dawn and I first watched it in Manhattan at a preview of The Passion. Sit, listening to people wail as they watched it. And I know as, I, as I've watched it a couple of times, I can't watch it, you know, to, you know, when I'm watching football, my wife can't sit next to me because I'm moving, I'm running, I'm hitting, you know, I'm, I, 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 I'm feeling it. And I watch the passion and that whip comes down on the back of Jesus Christ, that whip with pieces of bone and glass and stone on the end that not just rips the outward flesh, but as it rips the outward flesh, it digs beneath that, it rips through the muscles and just tears that back into shreds. When that thorn of crowns is pressed on the head, I I wenched. And when that that club is brought down on that thorn of crowns and drives it even deeper. And, and when he's punched and brutalized, and it was the will of the sovereign Lord to crush him and to put him to grief. Grief is sort of one of the consequences of living in a fallen world. If there were no sin, we would not feel any grief and pain. So Jesus not only bears our sin, but he bears our griefs and our sorrows, it says earlier. He feels uh, the very consequences of, of, of sin that we've sinned. He didn't sin, but, but, but he feels that. The Lord crushes him and puts him to grief. And these words are just as clear as can be. This is no accident of history. This is the sovereign covenant God of Israel, Yahweh the Lord, who is putting him to grief. I remember being in Manhattan years ago at the, I believe it was the ballroom in the Midtown Marriott. And it was a debate that took place. Maybe some of you were there. It was a debate between a Jewish rabbi and an evangelical apologist. And the question that they were debating was, who killed Jesus Christ? Of course, the the rabbi was very defensive. 
that, you know, in his mind, Christians accuse Jews of killing uh, Jesus Christ. And I think the, the evangelical apologist, his last name was Brown, uh, did a masterful job, was kind, was gracious, and simply pointed out that, you know, Pilate had something to do with the death of Jesus, and the Roman soldiers had something to do with the death of Jesus Christ, and the Jewish mob had something to do with the death of Jesus Christ. But Jesus himself had something to do with his death because he said, no man takes my life from me. I lay it down of myself and I have the power to take it up again. And the father had something to do with the death of his son. But then he said, but most importantly, I killed Jesus Christ. It was my sin And your sin that nailed him to that tree. But here it's telling us part of the story and really the major part of the story. It was the will of the Lord. This was, as Peter said, the determined plan of God. He was the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. It was already decided in that inter-Trinitarian council as they met. And the son surrenders to the will of the father to die the death that future sinners deserve. It was the will of the Lord. But just to step aside for a moment... The English word will there that is translated in that way really does not fully express what that Hebrew word means. That Hebrew, same Hebrew word is used in other places in the Old Testament, like Numbers 14. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into the land, the Israelites said. Samuel said, God brought me into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. And the strength of that Hebrew word is not really a a will, a decision, a decree. It's really talking about the father delighted. It pleased him. To bruise his son. Now how do you explain that? I have three sons. But I can envision scenarios where I would delight in the suffering of one of my sons. If I were a surgeon... And I have a younger son who needs a transplant. Maybe it's a bone marrow transplant. Maybe it's a kidney. Maybe it's a piece of a liver. And I've got an older son who says, Dad, I'm willing to go under the knife to rescue my little brother. Praise God. I can imagine I as a father... 
Part of me is saying, I don't want to see you suffer, but, but I'm proud that you're my son. I'm, I delight in being the surgeon that cuts you open, that causes you pain to bring life to your younger brother because I know that you will survive the surgery and you will live on also. It delighted the father. I had this ongoing debate, it may be over now, uh, with a pastor friend who, who argues that you know, in order for Jesus to really be my substitute, that he was, he not only took on my sin, he was made me. And that God the Father was angry with his son. And those are the words that he uses. God was angry with his son. And how did Jesus feel that God was angry with him? And I said, I I don't agree with that. He bore the wrath of God. But he bore the wrath of God as a substitute. He bore the wrath that I as a sinner deserve. He knew at all times he was a lamb without blemish and without spot. He knew at all times that he was innocent. He knew at all times that his father's wrath was not personally toward him, but his father's wrath was headed to you and me, and he slips in between and bears the wrath of God that I deserve. He was not angry with his son. I would think he was proud of his eternal son that said in eternity past, I'll do the will of my father. I'll leave the glories of heaven. I'll take on human flesh. I'll know what it is to be weak. I will suffer in behalf of sinners. I will bear the spit and the punches and the cursing of the worst of humanity. I will do that. The father wasn't angry with the son. Though the son did bear the wrath of God that you and I deserve. And it was real. And it crushed him. But the father delighted in it because the father knew that it would not be the end of his son's life. The writer of Hebrews put it this way. He says, it was fitting that he, that is Father God, that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that he should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. By perfect, the writer of Hebrews doesn't mean perfect in some moral sense but perfect in a sense of completion. 
that Jesus only is a perfect Savior because he's a suffering Savior. He cannot save us from our sin unless he dies the death that we deserve for our sins. But it was fitting. This was good and proper in the eyes of God because the Father knew it was not the end of Jesus' life. Even Jesus said, He said, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, and he's talking about himself. If it dies, it bears much fruit. The father delights to crush the son because he knows that it results in the redemption of many. He knows that the resurrection brings about an end to all of the son's suffering and an end to all of your suffering if you believe. But the second thing our text tells us, not only that it was the will of the sovereign God, but that the suffering of Christ would accomplish exactly what God intended. Look again in verse 10, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. This language here, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, is language that's lifted out of the book of Leviticus. It's sacrificial language. Jesus Christ is becoming the fulfillment of all of those sin and guilt offerings of of the Old Testament. But here it's not the life of an animal, which again, Hebrews says, could never bring about true redemption and forgiveness. But here it's the life of the servant of the Lord, the Messiah, that is lifted up as an offering, a guilt offering, not for his own guilt, but for my guilt. And when this takes place, when his soul is offered as a guilt offering, then it mentions a number of outcomes. It says, first of all, he shall see his offspring. Now, if you know the Old Testament, this whole concept of offspring or seed is very important. Begins all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, the seed of the serpent, the seed of the woman. And then it's amplified in the Abrahamic covenant that Abraham will have descendants, offspring, seed that are greater than the stars of heaven and the sands of the sea. And here it's saying that when when the Messiah, when the suffering servant offers up his soul as a guilt offering, that is, he's going to die. And later tells us he did die. But he still sees because he doesn't stay dead. And what he sees are descendants. Again, Hebrews 2.10, it was fitting for the father to, to bruise the son so that he could bring many sons to glory. 
Even earlier in Isaiah, very it's a striking way that Isaiah talks about the Messiah in Isaiah 9.6. He's a wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father. Now he's not saying that the son is the father, but he's saying the son is a everlasting father in some sense. Because from his death and resurrection... He brings many into his family. He brings many sons to glory. Maybe some of you have seen the uh, movie, The City of Angels. Older movie, maybe too old for some of you. Uh, But in that movie, an angel purposefully falls from heaven to earth. To become a human being. And when he's asked by another angel. Why would you give up heaven to become human? He simply takes out pictures of his family. Because he wanted a family. Now, in some sense, there's a redemptive theme in that. Because Christ, his father, the Trinity, they want to expand the family. They want to bring many sons and daughters to glory. They want to invite many more into this joy that The Trinity has shared this love, this fulfillment that the eternal God, the eternal Trinity has shared forever and ever. And God creates a world and redeems some of that world so that they can become part of the family of God. Now, I do believe that is a biblical concept. I think there are, sometimes in our contemporary music, we can take our thoughts too far. Uh, One of the songs I really love is uh, A Beautiful Name. But it has bad theology in it. I asked, I wrote and asked them, could I change one of the stanzas and they said no but I did anyway and we sing it and if they can take us to you know court for singing good theology but uh, if they want to but there's a phrase in there that says he would not have heaven without us but the implication is that there's something missing in Jesus Christ that he needed I I don't want heaven if I can't have you no Christ does not need you or me there was not one moment of deficiency or dissatisfaction in the trinity before the creation of the world and there never will be It is the good pleasure of God, the generosity of God, the grace of God 
that he even welcomes us into his family. Offspring. It also says, he shall prolong his days. That's actually language that's similar to the language of the Mosaic law. And what we read in Ephesians 6, you know, honor your father and mother that your days may be long on earth. The promise of longevity. And here is an obedient son. The most obedient son. He obeys even to the death of the cross. But he obeys. He offers up his soul as a guilt offering. Knowing that longevity of life is still before him. And not just longer days on earth. But eternal Days that the Son of God lives on and lives on forever. That's why he can say, nobody takes my life from me. I have the power to lay it down and I have the power to raise it back up again. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. That same word again. What delights the Lord. What pleases God. Death is not some. For the servant is not some tragic accident. Some tragic end of life. But from the servant of the Lord's perspective. I am doing what delights my father. What pleases him. I go to the cross, I suffer, I bear his punishment because this pleases the Father because it accomplishes his purpose of redeeming some who are lost. He delighted in doing the will of the Father even unto the death of the cross. And he knew that in doing the will of the Father, that the delight of the Father would prosper. It would multiply. And then he says out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. I must confess that as a young Christian and just a casual reading of scripture, I thought that referred to God the Father, which would be theologically correct, that the Father saw the travail of the Son's soul. He saw the suffering. He was the propitiation for our sin. He took away God's wrath. From, from, from us and God sees this suffering of his soul and God says I'm satisfied your work is sufficient for redemption that's theologically correct and there are other places that will say that but here it's the servant of the Lord it's giving us a look into his own heart and mind And what's happening when he's suffering. 
in those moments of that intense anguish. Even when he's crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that most intense suffering of his life, he knows what's going on. This is no accident. He has given himself to do the will of the Father to accomplish the redemption of sinners. And he, the servant, will see the travail of his own soul and be satisfied that I have done the will of the Father. It is finished. He will cry. I like the way the older commentators, Kylan Delich, comment on, the, on this. They say as a woman after her travail and sharp pains are over, having brought forth a son, looks upon it with joy and pleasure and is satisfied and forgets her former pain and anguish, so Christ in all of his sorrows and sufferings, sees a large number of souls regenerated, sanctified, justified, and brought to heaven in consequence of them, which is a most pleasing and satisfactory sight unto him. It's like the writer of Hebrews says, for the joy that was set before him, He endured the cross, despising the shame. It goes on to say that by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. Now that's an interesting way of talking about justification from those of us who knew the Pauline ways of talking about justification by faith or justification by the blood of Christ. But here he says we're justified by his knowledge. Now some would say, well, by his knowledge is meant knowledge of him, that we're counted righteous by knowledge of him. But even though that is true, It's really not consistent with the text. It's his knowledge. We are justified by his blood and by his work on the cross. But all of that is included in his perfect omniscience. That he knew from beginning to end. The design of his suffering, the accomplishment of his suffering, the triumph of his suffering, the effects and benefits of his suffering. He knew everything perfectly. He knew that it would accomplish exactly what the father intended his death and resurrection would accomplish. And by the knowledge of that righteous servant, we are accounted righteous. Because he knew you also. Before you even confessed him or even knew him, he knew you. 
And then he ends this section with sort of a bracket. He begins with, he shall offer his soul as a guilt offering. And he ends it again with, and he shall bear their iniquities. On the mind of this great evangelist of the Old Testament, Isaiah, often called the Apostle John of the Old Testament because he's such an evangelist, is this idea of substitution. He can't get away from substitution. And admittedly, there are many ways to look at the atonement or the work of Christ that are legitimate. You know, some talk about what they call Christus Victor, that, that, you know, he's, he, he triumphs over, over Satan and, and over evil powers. And, and that's what happened on the cross. And let us agree. Yes, that's part of it, but it's not the heart of it. The heart of the work of Christ is that he was wounded for our transgressions. Or as Paul says, that Christ died for, in the place of, in behalf of our sins, according to the scriptures. That he was our substitute on that cross. He bears our iniquities. I think the writer Isaiah, in his poetic way, wants us to be reminded that all of the wonderful outcomes that he talks about are because of the death of Jesus Christ as a substitute for sinners. Without Christ in your place, there is no eternal benefit. But thirdly, verse 12. We are assured that the suffering of Christ would be rewarded with the spoils of victory. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the the spoil with the strong. And let me say here, I prefer one of the older translations, the New American Standard where it says, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong. And in Hebrew poetry, parallelism is very important. And so the parallel words, you know, in the ESV, the English translation I use, are many and strong. But in the older translations, the parallel words are great and strong. And the Hebrew word that translated many can also be great. And I think it's better here saying he will be share the spoils of victory with those who are called the great and the strong. It is the picture of a, of a triumphal warrior, one who has defeated his enemies. He has conquered sin and death and he enjoys The spoils of victory as a great conqueror. He suffers in weakness, but he's rewarded as a victor. He is rewarded as a a conqueror. And our text tells us the reason why. I will divide him a portion with 
the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because Jesus is given this great victory because he has given his life to such great suffering because he poured out his soul to death and he was numbered with the transgressors not as one of them but he was with them he was numbered with them he bore the sin of many and as a consequence he makes intercession for the transgressors he is a victor he is awarded the spoils of victory and he shares those spoils writer of Ephesians Paul tells us that when Jesus ascended back up after he descended in his incarnation after he ascended he gave gifts to men he led captivity captive he had all of the trappings of one who had defeated his enemies who had won the war and he's sharing the spoils of victory with you and me I don't know what's going on in your life tonight. You may feel like it's Friday. I hear people say, well, you know, I'm bearing my cross. You don't understand Luke 9 if you think your tough times in life are your cross. But we can all feel like that sometimes. It's Friday. The worst that could be happening is happening to me. But Isaiah foresaw the day when Sunday would come. And we live on the side of history where Sunday has come. Friday is past. Without the resurrection, I wouldn't know that Jesus is the Son of God. I wouldn't know that his death for my sins was effective, that it accomplished my redemption. Without the resurrection, I wouldn't know that God accepts, he's pleased with the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, that Jesus can bring me to God. Without the resurrection, I don't, I wouldn't know that I am on the victory side of life. I'm not waiting for victory. I'm living in victory and I'm waiting for more victory. Because Sunday is here. My sin is atoned for fully. I am forgiven completely. I am accepted unconditionally. My future is secure absolutely. Because Friday is past. It's Sunday. Live on the resurrection side of life. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, may our hearts 
always be moved when we think of the suffering of Christ in our place. But may we always see that from the perspective of the open grave that Christ the Lord has risen today. Oh death, where is your sting? Oh grave, where is your victory? Thanks be unto you our God for giving us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ in whose name we pray. Amen.